Amen. Thank you to our praise team. Y'all, great job this morning in leading us in worship. Well, happy Father's Day to all of our dads. I just want to say here at the front end how much we appreciate you taking the initiative to bring your family out to church Sunday after Sunday and making that a priority for your household. The Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 says, Train up your child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. I, for one, want to make sure that I am setting the standard for my children and for my grandchildren someday to be right here at a place like this at this time on these days of the week. And so you're doing that for your own households, and I appreciate that and thank you for it. Um, We are in a series traveling through uh, looking at the life of the great man of God, Peter. Peter the Apostle, uh, first the disciple of Jesus, and then Peter who was installed as the head of the church here on earth. Uh, The episode that we're looking at today in his life comes from the Gospels, comes from Matthew chapter 17, and it's the story of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus ascends up onto this mountain with three of his most trusted, closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he transfigures or transforms himself uh, right before their eyes, and they see Jesus and all the glory of God uh, that has been veiled inside. So we'll take a deep look into that uh, story today, and we'll see how Peter interacts with this story. Um, Again, our text comes from Matthew chapter 17. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. This is a little bit lengthy passage of Scripture. We're going to read the whole story this morning. So y'all just hang in there with me. You've had some donuts, so you're good to go. Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So again, this is the account of the transfiguration. Let's go ahead and dive into this together. Starting at verse 1, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, the wording there in the English almost makes it sound like John is Jesus' brother, and that's not the case. John is the brother of James. Andrew is the brother of Peter. None of these men are the brothers of Jesus. Jesus, his brother James, comes along later. After the resurrection, he becomes a believer, so that's not the same James that's reported here in the scripture. None of these guys is Jesus' brother. Just want to be clear about that. Um, So Jesus grabs his inner circle of his most trusted three disciples, and they go up, the scriptures say, on a high mountain. I've got a picture for you here, and this picture is of Mount Hermon, what some scholars believe to be the place where Jesus and his disciples went. This is in the area of Caesarea Philippi. This is just after Peter has made this confession that Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And so Jesus has been teaching some of the crowd, and then it says that they go up onto this high mountain. Now, we don't know that they went to the tippy top of this mountain. This is Mount Hermon again. It's about 9,166 feet above elevation. It's snow capped most of the year. Actually, there's a ski resort. I think one of the pictures shows the ski resort. There's a ski resort up there on top of this mountain. And so we don't 
necessarily think that Jesus went to the very tippy top of this mountain, but perhaps he went to a secluded area somewhere on this uh, mountain area. Verse 2, and Jesus was transfigured before them. The word transfigured in English is kind of a weak word. It's not a word that is familiar to us. It's certainly, it's almost like one that maybe the English translators made up, um, trying to express what is happening here. In the Greek, the word is uh, metamorphothe, and this is where we get our word metamorphosis from. Um, similar to a butterfly transforming, that is changing into something different in appearance. Paul uses this same word, metamorphothe. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphothe, by the renewal of your mind. The word transform there in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 is, again, the same word that's used here over in Matthew chapter 17. And perhaps transformed is a better word for us. But I think the English translators were trying to identify a unique word. They made up a word uh, to try and identify this unique episode in Jesus' life. So they came up with the word transfigured. Again, the whole point there is that Jesus' appearance changed and that his appearance changed right before the disciples' eyes. It wasn't like they looked away and then they looked back and Jesus was different. They saw this transformation taking place. Now, one other unique thing about this word metamorphothe is that it is written in the passive form of the Greek word. In the passive form, meaning that this is not something that Jesus calls to happen to himself. He didn't just determine that he was going to show his glory to these guys. Rather, this is something that God the Father did for him or to him, rather. And so Jesus was just a passive participant in this transformation or this transfiguration. John personally acknowledges having witnessed this event when he writes, John chapter 1 and verse 14, this is perhaps a familiar verse for us. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But then the second half of the verse, we don't hear all that often, and we have seen his glory. Paul report, or John reports here, hey, look, I actually, I was up on that Mount of Transfiguration. I saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Peter, in his second epistle, writes about what he saw up on the mountain. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, he says at the end of the verse, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In verse 17, he says, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's quoting there some of what he heard while he was up there on this Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus. And then finally in verse 18, Peter writes, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying, Hey, look, I was there. I saw it. I heard God's voice. So there you have two contributors from the New Testament writing about their eyewitness accounts of the transfiguration. You say, Well, Gordon, I got a question for you. What is it that Jesus looked like? I mean, how, he transforms. Well, what, what was his appearance like? Well, Matthew tells us or reports to us, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2, he says that Jesus' face shone like the sun and that his clothes became white as light. In other words, there's an intensity of light that is near blinding. I mean, the disciples perhaps were having to cover their eyes a little bit to just be able to peek through their eyes, be able to see, or peek through their fingers, be able to see uh, what it was that uh, Jesus was transforming into. Y'all looked at the sun before. Uh, you can't just look up and stare at the sun. Uh, the sun is something that you have to kind of just look at and then look away, look at and then look away because the intensity of it is so, is so great. Um, elsewhere in Scripture, we see the glory of Jesus described. For example, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14. John has a vision of Jesus in heaven, and he writes, The hairs of Jesus' head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. The end of verse 16. His face was like the sun, shining in full 
strength. Think about that. This is what John saw when he gets a glimpse of Jesus in heaven. He says his face shined like the sun in its most fullest, top, the top of the day, its fullest strength. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, John says, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5, And night will be no more. There will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God, that is Jesus, will be their light, that Jesus is going to be the light of heaven, and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, Jesus is the Son of heaven. Um, the light of Jesus' glory will pierce every nook and cranny of the eternal space, and there will be no retreat from it. There will be no darkness in heaven. Jesus will represent, he will be for us, his glory will be for us, perpetual daylight. The Apostle Paul on another occasion describes seeing Jesus' glory on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9 and verse 3. Now as Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly, it says, a light from heaven shone around him. And then he has an interaction with the Lord Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Well, I'm the one that you're persecuting. Jesus reveals himself to the Apostle Paul with his glory, verse 4, and it says that it caused Paul, causing him to fall to the ground. Paul says that the light that he saw, the glory of Jesus, was so brilliant, it was so bright, it literally knocked him off his horse, and he fell to the ground, partly because he realized he was in the presence of the glory of God, but also because it was just so intense. I mean, he could, the man couldn't even stand. He couldn't even get his bearings. It was so bright. So what is it that the disciples Peter, James, and John see? They see the glory of God. The glory that was hidden beneath the skin of Jesus is now unveiled for all of the disciples to see. Now, I'd like to take just a few moments to show you how this passage of Scripture is a fulfillment of the Old Covenant system. How this passage of Scripture is a fulfillment of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant law. Um, we're going to have to jump back to Exodus chapter 26. And let me give you a little bit of background about what's going on in Exodus 26. The Israelites are camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. They've just escaped out of Egypt. And Moses is up on the mountain, and he's meeting with God, and God's given him the law. He's given him all these things and given him these instructions. And amongst the many instructions that he gives him, he talks to Moses about the construction of the tabernacle. i got a picture for you here. Um, this is just a rendering of what the tabernacle perhaps may have looked like from the detailed descriptions that God gives to Moses. A tabernacle was a portable tent. It was a holy place where, people, where God would, uh, will come and he will meet or dwell within the midst of his people. Among the many instructions that God gives, he includes instructions about the materials to use for the outer and inner covering. So, yes, we're still looking at that. So the tabernacle is that tent-covered structure there, and then the tents around it are the outer uh, part, the outer uh, area. So you've got the tabernacle itself with its inner and outer coverings, and God gives specific instructions about that. Exodus chapter 26 and verse 14. Um, God tells Moses, make for the tent a covering of ram's skins dyed red, and over that a covering of hides of sea cows. You say, what in the world is a sea cow? Never heard that term before. Well, it's actually an animal. I've got a picture of it for you here, very similar to a, um, to a manatee. Um, they're cute. I don't know if they're cuddly, but they're kind of cute. And uh, they eat the sea grasses or the seaweed. Uh, they're veg vegetarians, um, and they live in the sea, and they're prolific in the area around the Red Sea, um, especially back in Bible times. It's also referred to as a dugong. I don't know if some of your translations may actually render that word, the dugong. A dugong is very similar, again, to a manatee, prolific in that part of the world during Bible times. They were hunted to near extinction, sought after for their thick blubber and for their massive hides. If you recall, Moses and the Israelites are camped out around the base of Mount Sinai, right close by what body of water? 
the Red Sea, they're right close by the Red Sea where these manatee would have been. And, that the, and so God says he wants the outer material for the tabernacle to be made out of this dugong skin, something that at that time would have been widely available for trade or for harvest. So once again, listen now, so once again, the Bible is right on cue reflecting the local culture and the local economy of its day. Ha-ha. The Israelites would have tanned this material, turned it into soft leather, and that leather would have become the outer covering of the tabernacle structure. Underneath the dugong skin would be a ram skin dyed red. You say, well, Gordon, what does any of this have to do with the Lord Jesus? How does this somehow fulfill the Old Testament or the Old Covenant system? Well, this dugong skin is tanned, and in its natural undyed state, the finished product forms into a dull grayish color. The leather is not very impressive. So if somebody was walking by the tabernacle and they would see this tabernacle there, they would think to themselves, well, that doesn't look like all that much. Uh, there's nothing going on there that doesn't look all that impressive. I don't see what all the fuss is about. However, inside of the tabernacle is God. Inside of the tabernacle is the glory of God, but the dugong skin conceals God's glory. The dugong skin veils God's glory so that passersby would not know that the Shekinah glory of God dwells inside. Now, what's that got to do with Jesus? Well, what we learned at the transfiguration is that all of this time, beneath the surface of Jesus' skin, the glory of God has been hidden from the view of men. That is that Jesus' flesh has served as a veil hiding the glory of God within. A person might walk by Jesus and they would say, hey, you know what? That's a carpenter's son. I don't see anything special there. He looks just like the rest of us. The casual observer would not know that the Lord of glory was standing in their midst. But for Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, they get a special glimpse. They get a front row seat. They have seen Jesus perform miracles. They've even recently seen him walk on water, but they've never seen him like this. And so they get a glimpse of his glory. Friends, God gave specific instructions to the, Israelite and the Israelites in the desert about how to construct this tabernacle system and the festivals and the sacrifices so that when Jesus showed up on the scene, we along with the Jewish people would be able to say, here is the Christ, here is the Son of the living God. This is the man that perfectly fulfills every aspect of the sacrificial system right down to the coverings for the tabernacle itself. Verse 3, and behold, there appeared to him. That was pretty good stuff. I don't know about y'all, but I was excited about it. Verse 3, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So all of a sudden, just drops out of the sky, boom, here's Moses standing on one side of Jesus. All of a sudden, drops out of the sky, boom, here's Elijah standing on the other side of Jesus. And the three of them are having a conversation. It's like Peter, James, and John are just hanging out there and observing all this taking place. Um, you say, well, what are they talking about? Well, Luke over in his gospel actually tells us what they were talking about, or at least some of what they were talking about. Luke writes, chapter 9 and verse 31, that they spoke of Jesus' departure, which, was about to, uh, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, they were talking about the cross. They were talking about his resurrection. They were talking about the ascension. They were talking about the events that would very soon take place in the life of the, of the Lord Jesus at his, as he made his way to Jerusalem. This is highly significant. It's significant because Moses is the person to whom God gave the law. And Moses would have been very aware how the Lord Jesus fulfills every aspect 
of the Old Testament covenantal system. And then the other person that's standing there is Elijah, who is considered by the Jews the greatest of all the prophets of God. And so here are basically the representatives of the law and the prophets who are very aware that Jesus fulfills both the Old Testament sacrificial system and all that the prophets had to say. And so they are confirming that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. This guy perfectly fulfills it all. Peter, James, John, don't you get it? Back to verse 4. Peter responds to this, verse 4. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you would like, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Bless Peter's heart. <laughs> and that's really the way this appears in the text. It's kind of like, Peter, what are you, just, just sometimes, you know, just zip it. Just, just shut your yapper, and there's just really no reason for you. But Peter's one of those guys, you know, he enters into a room mouth first, right? Um, he just starts talking about what it is that he sees. And so in this occasion, he just finds himself, or perhaps um, feels like he needs to say something. And so this is what he comes up with. Hey, how about I build a tent for you? How about I build one for Moses and one for Elijah? We'll just camp out here. I've never seen anything like this. I don't think that I even need to worry about my life back home or anything else that's going on. Can't we just stay up here for the rest of eternity? This is remarkable. And so there's Peter's little bit of um, uh, suggestion. Um, you'll notice, though, that Peter is speaking out of turn because God the Father actually interrupts Peter. Look at verse 5. Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, again, Peter, stop talking. Stop offering any advice. Uh, we've got this covered here. Um, just zip it for a little bit. Listen to Jesus. You may have noticed that these are the same words that God the Father speaks at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Um, we have an approving Father and an obedient Son. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this voice, they fell on their faces and were terrified. The word in the Greek, therefore terrified, is the word phobeo. And it doesn't just mean that they were scared or that they were taken aback. It means that they were literally scared to death. They thought that they were going to die. So when they heard the voice of God and in seeing all that they just saw, they thought, well, this is just the end of me. Uh, they were completely trembling. Um, and so verse 7, Jesus came and touched them, tapped them on the shoulder, said, rise and have no fear. Um, now here's a question that just occurred to me. Why is Jesus not scared? That, did that occur to anybody? I mean, it doesn't seem, seem like, it. I mean, Moses is just dropped out of the sky and is having a conversation. Elijah's on the other side. He's got his glory on completely full display, and it doesn't even seem like his blood pressure's even up. I mean, it, it, the episode with Peter, James, and John, he walks over and just touches them on the shoulder. Hey, guys, hop up. Nothing to be afraid of here. Um, it just seems like he's totally at calm and totally at peace with all this. And so I just wonder, I was like, well, why is Jesus not, why, why did this not strike him as something monumental. Well, it's because he's had conversations before with Moses. And he's had conversations before with Elijah. And spent a lot of time together in heaven. Um, his glory is something that Jesus is very familiar with. It's his glory. Uh, this was very much something at home for Jesus. This was his own essence that is now on display for the disciples to see. Hearing the voice of the Father, Jesus was glad to hear it. Something that was a very familiar voice to him. And so it might have been scary for others, but for Jesus, this is all just a reminder of home. 
Last verse, verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So after the disciples fall to their knees and cover their faces, they look up with a tap on their shoulder. Everything's back to normal. The glory of Jesus is back under wraps. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Um, the voice is gone. And they said, the Bible says they see no one but the Lord Jesus. All right, well, that is our story for today and our treatment of it. And so that's the transfiguration where Jesus unveils his glory for the disciples to see. Um, he has Peter, James, and John there as most trusted of his disciples. God unmasks or unveils the glory of God that's contained within. And so that means it's time for us to ask a question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let me see if I can answer it. I've got two points of reflection for us. The first one has to do with Father's Day, of course, right? And I must say, as I was preparing uh, for today, weeks ago, and kind of lining up my sermons and the text that I wanted to cover for this series, um, it didn't occur to me until just a couple of weeks ago that the sermon I was going to be preaching on Father's Day, or the scripture, was the transfiguration. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> I'm going to have to give a soliloquy at the end of the service. It's a little challenge to our dads because there's nothing in this text that has anything to do with Father's Day. And then as I got to studying it, I remembered that Jesus, that those words of the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I was like, Lord, you are so much more in charge and so much more involved in writing of sermons and of preparing things than I uh, in, am even aware so praise God for that. Now about those words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want to play a quick game for it with you, okay? Um, I'm going to give you a half of a phrase or half of a sentence, and you'll just see if you can complete it, okay? And you can audibly say it out loud, shout it out, however you want to do it. Um, here we go. You see if you can complete this statement. The early bird gets the... All right, very good. The penny saved is... A bird in the hand is worth... Uh, a couple more for you. Absence makes the heart grow. Um, all good things must come to. A picture is worth. Easy come. Better late. Good things come. And how about for Father's Day, like Father? All right. So those are words that stick in our mind. Y'all had no trouble coming up with those. We just rattled those off. In fact, if you were to go down to one of the local nursing homes and you meet with people who are, you know, have walked through a lot of life before, and you were to share those same phrases with them, they'd be able to complete those sentences with no trouble at all. The point is that we remember those sayings. They stick in our brain for a lifetime. Uh, and so we're all in agreement that some things that are said stick with us. Well, friends, a father's words to his children are much the same. Listen to the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 16 and verse 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Friends, fathers especially, please do not underestimate the value and the impact of your words. Tell your children that you are pleased with them. Tell your children, like, the, like God the Father did, that you are proud of them. If God the Father thought it wise and necessary that he affirm God the Son, how much more should we speak gracious words to our children, words that will stick with them, as the Scripture says, as sweetness to the soul, as health to the body, and you and I know it'll be that for a lifetime. Now, I know that some of us were raised in homes where we never heard those words of affirmation, where admirable character traits that we exhibited, genuine character traits were never affirmed, Friends, I know that some of us grew up in homes like that where dad was cold and distant. 
But friends, God forbid that we should rob our children of this blessing because our dad robbed us. Speak words of blessing and affirmation over your children. Follow the example of the greatest father that the world will ever know and speak words of blessing into their life. Number two, second difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that we need to heed God's words and listen to Jesus. Look again at that scripture, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5. The Lord says, this is my son. He says, God interrupts Peter. He says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You know, so often our prayers must sound like a mile long list to God of what we need for him to do for us. And God in his great patience just sits there and he listens to us and all the things that are bothering us and all the things that we'd like his help with. Our prayers must sound to him like a child sitting in Santa's lap and just rattling off all the stuff that we would love for him to do. Give me this, God. Do this for me. Help me out with this. And certainly God wants for us to bring those things to him. He tells us how to pray. He says, look, bring your daily bread issues. Bring your stuff before the God of, of heaven. Nevertheless, so often our prayers are only about our daily bread issues, and that is just one side of what prayer is supposed to be. The other side of prayer is actually listening for God's voice, giving God an opportunity to speak and to share his thoughts and his wisdom and his take on what it is that we're going through. Friends, we spend hours in front of the TV trying to recover from a stressful day. We spend hours on Instagram scrolling through and looking at what's going on in other people's lives trying to recover from a stressful day. We'll spend hours out on the lake, hours in a deer stand, hours out running, hours doing all sorts of things to try and recover from our stressful lives. However, if it is peace that we are after, a peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that will calm our heart and our mind, friends, there is no substitute for being quiet in the presence of God. Listening to Jesus, listening to Jesus is the remedy for our harried lives and our harried world. If you struggle with anxiety, as I know many folks do, the peace of God can be found in quiet places listening to Jesus. If you're hurting or despondent, and I know many folks are, the peace of God can be found in quiet places listening to Jesus. If direction is what you seek and what you need, it is available to you in quiet places, listening to Jesus. God the Father knew that the greatest antidote for a troubled mind, that the effective remedy for a rudderless life, that the cure for anxious thoughts is nothing more than to be quiet in the presence of God himself to listen to Jesus. How did Peter get through those many imprisonments and leading all the way up to him being crucified on a cross upside down. How did, he, how did he navigate such a struggle of life? He did it because he spent long periods of time in quiet listening to Jesus. So here's what I'd like for us to do this week. i got a little bit of homework for us. I know we're out of school, but, you know. Try this out. Find a quiet spot somewhere around your house. You say, a quiet spot at my house? <laughs> Maybe the bathroom, I don't know. But find, find some place uh, where you can be quiet, where you can find a retreat, and stay in that spot. Let your mind, it'll take 10 minutes, 15 minutes perhaps, just to let the noise of the day settle out of your brain. 
You really will. The longer you sit there, you'll realize, golly, there's so much stuff going on in my mind. But stay in that spot long enough to let all that stuff finally die down and commit yourself to stay there until everything goes quiet. And without saying a word, begin to listen for the voice of the Lord of glory. Friends, Jesus will speak to you. Our part on the deal is to be quiet long enough to hear him. Will you try that? Can we do that? I know that it'll be a blessing to your life. Let's let's bow our heads together for prayer. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We thank you for the opportunity to um, get a glimpse, like Peter, James, and John did, of your greatness, of your glory. God, there's nothing that's going on in our lives that you didn't know was coming. There's nothing going on in our lives that you can't get us through. Lord, in the quiet moments that we spend now and in the week to come, we pray that your peace that surpasses all understanding would flood our hearts and our minds. Lord, your presence is sweet. Your presence is healing. And it is available for us. Lord, bless our times of quiet. As we come around this table, we're reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body. Lord Jesus, we have hearts that are grateful, hearts that are full, because of what you were willing to do on our behalf. Again, Lord, speak to us in the quiet moments of communion today. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.